All right, uh, let me start the sermon today with a story, as I do, that's going to help us connect to our passage of Scripture. So I want to tell you about Carice. Carice uh, grew up in Georgia, and uh, she grew up going to church, but she says that church felt more like kind of ritual religion to her. And when she went to college, she actually met some Christians who were very passionate about their faith, and it made her question the depth and the sincerity of her own faith, how serious was actually her faith. Well, she graduated college, and she started working in Christian media, so her whole her job, her whole life is filled with just Christian things. Everything's just a whole one big happy situation of, of, of Christianity, or so it seemed. Chris started struggling, and she started asking a deeper question. Is, essentially, she asked the question, is God the best thing, or, or are there things better than God? That was the, the deep kind of philosophical question she was starting to ask herself. And she was reading a book, and the book was about uh, two lesbians in a relationship. And as she read the book, this thought occurred to her. The thought was, I've never been able to just be queer. That was the thought. Something she had never said, never spoken out loud before. At this time, she found some affirming churches. And it planted the seed in her that queer identity was something that she should embrace. She also discovered gay theology and Basically, what, what came about from this journey she began was she started to think, well, it sounds like Christians, just different groups, have just made up their own versions of Christianity. Everyone's got their own version of Christianity. And she felt cheated by her past. She lived with her sister at the time, and her sister was uh, a believer and uh, strong faith, and this created this transformation in Carice, this direction she was going in, created enormous tension in their relationship. She was actively searching online to try to find a retreat center that she could go to that would help her deconstruct her faith. That was the journey she was on. She felt like she had been brainwashed by her church, by her Christian friends and family, that the idea that her desires, or following her desires would be wrong, made her angry. She was mad at the idea that God would not approve of certain feelings that she might have. And she got angry with her friends, angry with her church, and so she lashed out. She lashed out online on social media, posting angry things. One friend, she was attacking different people, one friend ended up having to block her on line. And the, the, the mantra she began to live by, it's a very common mantra, was the, the quote, do what thou wilt. Do what thou wilt. That became her motto in life. Anything goes. Do what thou wilt. And she would change on Instagram, she would change her bio line depending on what she felt in the moment. Whatever she felt like she was in any given moment, she would just update it. That was her identity in her Instagram bio. She started a relationship with another woman. She started trying different drugs. And things that she had been told were bad actually felt good. And this was more evidence to her that she had been deceived and lied to. And things were good for a while. 
But she couldn't find the peace that she wanted. She was lacking peace desperately, so she started smoking more and more weed, and that didn't seem to help. Then it was the 2020 lockdowns and the death of George Floyd and all of this culminating together. Her romantic relationship was not giving her peace. She was finally diagnosed with a mental disorder and given antidepressants. And things got so bad that she would go to bed every night and think to herself, I kind of hope I don't wake up tomorrow. And this feeling and thought grew and grew and grew. It got so heavy that she just wanted it to stop. She just wanted it to stop so bad because she couldn't stop the thoughts that she's never going to find peace. She's never going to be okay. She's never going to be who she's supposed to be. It's never going to work out. Oh, these, these thoughts attacking her, coming into her mind. And so she called friends. She started, she was desperate, in a very desperate place. She started calling around different friends. No one picked up. So she started driving home, thinking to herself, there's a bottle of pills in my house, and I could end it all in a moment. Now, let me pause her story there. I want to come back to it at the end of the sermon. It's going to relate to our passage of Scripture today. Sorry to leave you on a giant cliffhanger there. But it is a powerful story that I want to tell, and we'll get back to it at the end. So we're in our series called The Real Jesus, and we're going through the Gospel of Mark. It's an adventure through the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to be in Mark chapter 3, verse 22 today, starting in verse 22. And uh, the reason we're, you know, this is a long-term series for us, bit by bit, chunk by chunk, going through Mark. We'll, we'll maybe do this up to Easter and then take a little break and do some other things. But we're going to keep coming back to it until we finish the whole gospel. And uh, we've got to look at the Jesus of Scripture, right? That's uh, the Jesus who his friends wrote about. So let's pray and then uh, let's get into this. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word has the power to set us free. And I pray today that you would set us free from darkness, that you would show us your light, and that you would help us be united where there are forces at work to divide us. I pray you'd help us see that and know that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Mark 3, starting verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, talking about Jesus, they're saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. This is God's word. 
Now, Jesus is getting himself in more hot water as we've been journeying along here in the Gospel of Mark. We see that the religious leaders of the day do not like Jesus. Jesus is, is shaking things up, and Jesus is getting himself in so much hot water here that uh, now the religious people from Jerusalem are coming. Jerusalem was the center of their faith. It was the seat of temple authority. And so now the bigwigs are showing up, and... Um, they're, the scribes are the, the theology majors of the religion. The, the scribes are the ones that know the scriptures. They're the ones that study the scriptures. They understand the, 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 the books of, of Moses, the old, what we call the Old Testament. And uh, they, they develop this. And part of the problem is people who are, are academically, sometimes this is the problem, people who are academically inclined or just in academic environments studying theology, trying to kind of nitpick every little thing in the Bible, if, if that's done wrong, it can lead to a lot of arrogance, a lot of unkindness, a lot of harshness, and a lot of judgment. And if we ever find ourselves in that place where our study of theology leads us into judgment of others, then we're totally doing it wrong. We're doing it like these guys were doing it, like the scribes were doing it, totally doing it wrong. That's not how it should be done. So they, these scribes, uh, uh, they've got to find something on Jesus. They've got to stop Jesus, however they can. And so they come up with this new line of attack on Jesus. They develop this, this new line of attack because they can't deny that the miracles that Jesus is doing, the, the healings in particular, it talks about the exorcisms, setting people free from demonic powers. They can't deny that this is real. It's so powerful, they have to admit this is actually happening. So they have to have a theory, they have to have a way of explaining how he's able to do this. Now, the, just to be clear, the Bible gives us a couple of categories of, let's say, ailments that we might have or, or sicknesses we might have, as well as even personality disorders or things like epilepsy, things like that, that sometimes get associated with demonic uh, oppression or uh, possession. The Bible has two categories that... Some of those things can be demonic in origin, but sometimes, so sometimes they're supernatural, but other times they're just natural things. So the Bible has, it accounts for both. So we can't assume that every type of issue somebody might have is demonic in origin. It has to be discerned. It could be. Sometimes it could be a mixture. It could be both. Now, you might struggle with the idea of, of demons, demonology. You might think, you know, some Christians are, a lot of Christians are okay with this. You, you get it, right? There's a spiritual world. Yeah, we understand that. But some people struggle. Some people feel embarrassed about this, or this can be a barrier to some people believing in the Bible, believing in God. But if you believe in God, you believe in a spiritual world. So to, to believe in God is to believe in spiritual things. And if God made physical people, why couldn't he have made spiritual people? Uh, if you believe, or if you're open to the idea of the multiverse, then you already believe in beings and other dimensions. So, demons are real. They can have real power in people's lives. I've seen somebody manifest a demon before firsthand. So, I, I'm convinced of this. I know this can happen. We don't want to make too much of it, but we also don't want to deny it. Um, the only logical conclusion that these scribes can come to about Jesus is that he must be doing these works by the power of Satan. Because they, they won't accept that, that his ministry could be legitimately from God. They won't accept it. So because they can't deny that these exorcisms and these healings are real, the only, the only option they have is to say, well, he, he must be using the power of Satan to do these kinds of things. Some, some, so they're claiming, essentially, there's some kind of civil war 
going, some kind of demonic civil war that's happening. Demons are like fighting and hurting each other in order to make it, in order as, 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 you know, to make it appear that Jesus is powerful. And so they, they, they use this term Beelzebul. It is by the power of Beelzebul that Jesus is doing these things. Beelzebul, in, in some renditions of this or translations of this, it can be translated Lord of the Flies. Literally can be, mean that. There's a famous book uh, written named after. It comes from the Bible here from Beelzebul. But at, at the heart of, of, of this, a more literal translation, is the idea of um, a master of a house. Beelzebul, the term, that name means a master of a house or even a ruler, an exalted ruler of a kingdom. Okay, that's the, the idea of Beelzebul. But it's not a neutral term, it is a term of contempt. And there might be some connection between Beelzebul and the cult of Baal in the Old Testament. So for ancient Israelites, their arch nemesis in the Old Testament was uh, the, the idol or, or the god Baal. Lots of people like to worship Baal for some reason. He seems like he was a cool guy to them, not a cool guy, but they like Baal. So Baal is like the arch nemesis enemy of the Israelites. And so to say, so, so the first part of Beelzebul sounds like, and in, in the, the original language, looks like Baal. And so it could mean exalted Baal, Beelzebul, exalted Baal. It could mean that. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to, they're trying to imagine Jesus as the worst, greatest enemy that Israel has ever had. In our DNA, this would be the Hitler card, right? That's what the, that's, to imagine the worst evil today, that's what people do in our day, right? They're like, oh, yeah, it's Hitler. Yeah, that person's like Hitler. That's like, it's a Hitler thing. It's a Nazi thing. Right? That's, that's our concept in our modern day era is if you're going to think of the worst thing ever, ever you just go to Hitler, the Nazis, or that, that, that time period. You, that's where you go. And so that's what they're doing with Beelzebul, our arch nemesis, the exalted Baal. That's how Jesus is doing this. And so for Jesus to be accused of doing, he's doing these good works, doing powerful works, great works, but they're accusing him of doing it by the power of and in the name of Satan. And this is what Jesus means when he says, uh, he talks about the unforgivable sin. And uh, he, uh, he's talking, you know, this idea of blaspheming God, essentially. Like the idea of, you know, blasphemy is um, when you disrespect God. Say something disrespectful about God, that's blasphemy. Now, amazingly, in this passage, Jesus says, all blasphemies will be forgiven. Now, how amazing is that? How gracious is that? That God, even though you can completely disrespect God, God is so gracious and so willing to forgive. Except for one blasphemy is unforgivable. And it is claiming, this is the blasphemy, it's claiming that the Holy Spirit is really an evil spirit. And we see that that's made very, Mark makes it more explicitly clear than the other Gospels. This is in verse 30, we read it. It says, it tells us exactly, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. That's what it means to commit the unforgivable sin. Now, this is the most disturbing thing Jesus ever said. Very disturbing. A lot of Christians are very worried about this one. Feel anxious about it. Because you might say, what if I act, it's unforgivable, so what if I accidentally commit this sin? And there's, there's no hope. There's no chance of redemption because it's an unforgivable. I mean, Jesus said it's unforgivable. What does it mean? Well, when we look at the way the scribes were doing this, there's some indication here that they were repeating over and over again. This was a, a constant refrain they had of attacking Jesus. It's not, so we shouldn't think of the unforgivable sin as a one-time occurrence or just a, 
a certain sequence of words, and if someone were to hand me a piece of paper and I was just to read it off and be like, oh no, I didn't realize I accidentally, they tricked me into committing the unforgivable sin. You know, this is a belief that somebody has, and, and we could say, based on how the scribes are doing it, this is a persistent belief, persistently claiming, getting the categories of good and evil mixed up, that good is evil and evil is good, but it's more than that, it's that basically God is Satan. That's the unforgivable sin, is to persistently believe that God is Satan. Now, it is great kindness and great grace that Jesus would tell us about this. He doesn't have to tell us. Some people might not know. What great, because to be warned means a couple of things. It means he doesn't want us to do it, but also it means it's avoidable. To be warned about it means that you can avoid doing it. You can say, I don't want to fall into that trap. I want to steer clear of that trap. So that is the, the kindness and the power of God at work. And it reveals something quite amazing uh, when Jesus says, actually, you're blessed. But by, by accusing Jesus of using the power of Satan, or being on team Satan, and him saying, actually, what you're doing by doing that is you're, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit, it reveals something to us about the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because we might say, well, Jesus does all the stuff he does because he's from heaven, because he's God's son, he's God in the flesh. Isn't that how he does all these powerful things? And Jesus is saying, actually, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that he does these things. And so what we saw was, if we go back several episodes in this series. We saw at the, the water baptism of Jesus, when Jesus went under the water, he was baptized by John. He did that as an example to us. He, he had no sin. He didn't need to be washed of his sins, but he did it as an example to us, to be humble, to identify with us in our sin, that we might be baptized as well, like Jesus was. So Jesus did that, and then as he came out of the water, the Holy Spirit came upon him. He was, had the power of the Spirit, and then he was sent into the wilderness, tempted by Satan, overcame those temptations, and then that's when his public ministry, his supernatural ministry began. And so the miracles, the, the exorcisms, the, the healings, it's all by the power of the Spirit. And, and the same thing, the same pattern happened with Jesus' disciples. Jesus, once he been crucified, resurrected, ascended into heaven, then the disciples were waiting, and the Holy Spirit came on them. And then as they received power, they had power for ministry, so they were able to see people set free from darkness, see healings happen, see amazing things happen. So for us, if we lack power in the Christian life, if we feel oppressed by demons, we feel like, I can't fight evil very well in my life, I'm very, very, my faith is shallow, or I'm, I'm struggling in certain ways, or I feel like I fall into temptation very easily, or you know, I don't have a lot of faith to pray for supernatural things, or I never really see God doing any kind of miracles in my life, then well, we need to ask for the Holy Spirit, the, the power of the Holy Spirit, because all Christians have the Spirit. The Spirit does different things. But like Jesus, well, it was revealed that he, it was by the Spirit. They didn't realize that. They didn't realize in accusing Jesus, they're actually accusing the Holy Spirit. And we can be encouraged that the Spirit that he received is the same Spirit that we receive. That's very encouraging. The same, the Spirit, the power that was in Jesus doing these things is the same power that we can receive as well. So these scribes, they are very close-minded. They won't accept, and, and, and this is an important lesson to us, is people can see miracles and healings and the power of God at work and still deny that it's God, right? Some people believe, based on the miracles, that does happen too, but it's not a surefire thing. And so Jesus switches his, his, his strategies here. He doesn't do another miracle, doesn't go into some big, long, elaborate teaching thing. He, he, 
he reasons with them. And this passage here actually shows us that there is some value. I mean, basically just gives them a logical, it's still parabolic in the sense that it's still like a little parable. It's a little, little, Jesus does, does communicate in narrative ways oftentimes. So it's still a parable of sorts, but it's basically pure logic. Gives them this, you know, kingdom divided cannot stand line. And um, in doing that, he's kind of like temporarily like going Vulcan on them, I guess. You know, like pulling out some logic you know, that can't be defeated. Maybe he's doing the, you know, the Vulcan greeting, live long and prosper. And what he's saying to them is, and, and this is absolutely brilliant because there's really no comeback to it. it it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's the death nail to their, to, to their, this new strategy they've come up with. And they would have been so pleased with this strategy. They, they would have been so happy with this strategy because not only is it a viable option, it's, it's the only viable explanation they have that Jesus can actually do these, you know, have this power. But in this day and age, sorcery was condemned to death. If you were caught doing sorcery, you could be condemned to death. So they're probably quite happy with themselves, because like, not only can we explain how he's doing this, but also this justifies our desire to kill him. And so Jesus brings out this line that completely defeats them in one, in one statement. This is the power of the reason, the rationale. Now, long debates and you know, things like that are not always helpful, but... There can be a place sometimes for just a solid little nugget of wisdom and logic that can shut people down, help people realize their, or at least not shut people down, what I mean is it can help people realize the futility of their line of thinking, that they actually need to reassess what they're thinking and what they're believing. And so Jesus makes a statement about you know, a kingdom divided cannot stand, or a house divided, he says both statements, a kingdom divided cannot stand, and a house divided against itself cannot Stand, And what he's saying is for, for a kingdom, he's talking about their nation. A nation that is divided cannot stand. Or a house would be like a, a tribe within that nation, perhaps. So a tribe that essentially he's talking about a civil war. If you, if you, if you have internal fighting and internal conflict, it's, things collapse quickly. When there's internal fighting and civil wars, power struggles Internally, things collapse so quickly. It's, it's, a civil war is, is the suicide of a nation. If you've seen the, the Avengers movie, uh, Civil War, um, anyone, any, 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 any Marvel fans here seen uh, Captain America Civil War? In that movie, what is it? It's Captain America with certain Avengers on his team and then Iron Man and certain Avengers on, on his team and they have this big fight, this big conflict, and it's always called uh, people geek out about whose powers can overcome other people's powers. Like, that, that's always a very interesting thing for, for geeky Marvel people. But uh, that civil war that they fought destroyed the Avengers. They could not survive it. And so for Satan to be shooting his own deputies, to be shooting his own sergeants, as it were, taking his own soldiers out, would destroy his own power, would diminish his own ability, would be suicidal in one sense. The logic is flawless here. When we think about our own civil war, our own history in America, we think about some of that began, you know, Lincoln was Abraham, well, and also the, the quote, a house divided against itself cannot stand. A lot of people attribute that to Abraham Lincoln, but it was actually Jesus that said it first. So Abraham Lincoln was just quoting Jesus. But Abraham Lincoln, when the war was started, it was initially to do with maintaining, preserving the, the union, but 
Over time, and he was an abolitionist, so he wanted to get rid of slavery, but he didn't believe politically it was viable, didn't believe there was a political viable option uh, at that time. And so it was a compromise of, well, some, places are gonna, some states will be free and, and some won't. And that was the idea. And so it was started uh, to do with that, but then over time, it became apparent that actually this is growing more and more to be about ending slavery. And so that's the Civil War merged into that, and that was a good and moral cause. Not everyone was fighting for that reason, of course. The South seceded for that very reason, but lots of people fought as abolitionists, motivated by their Christian beliefs. But even in, even in a civil war, even though it ended up being about a good moral reason, it is the bloodiest war, the bloodiest encounter that America has ever had. Over 620,000 people died in the civil war. See, that, that's the power of a civil war, is it... it if it, if it didn't stop when it stopped, it would have destroyed the nation. And so these scribes are claiming that there is a demonic civil war, and in one foul swoop, Jesus demolishes with pure logic, demolishes this idea that, well, if they're fighting each other, they cannot stand. This makes no sense. So they were so happy with themselves, like, we're going to trap Jesus in this one. We've come up with a great academic theological idea because we're the scribes and we know all the cool stuff, all the cool theology. We found a really cool way to accuse Jesus, and Jesus defeats them in this one moment. There's no coming back from this. There's no arguing with this. There's no misunderstanding this. Jesus has defeated his enemies in this, in this wisdom, in this battle that he's in with them. We can think about it in, in some modern-day terms, the idea of internal division, not being able to stand. So if, you're, if your body, if the cells in your body start attacking themselves, right? You have like an autoimmune disease. Your white blood cells start attacking organs in your body or other things in your body. You cannot stand. You have a civil war happening inside of you. It's going to take you out. And there are more and more autoimmune diseases that people have nowadays. And so this principle is very, very powerful, isn't it? We can take, people take this principle from Jesus. He's not just talking about demons casting out demons and how their kingdom would fall. This is a, this is, the, the idea of this, this wisdom from Jesus is where there's division, it's always leading towards destruction. It's just you haven't gotten to the destruction yet. That's the principle from Jesus. Wherever there is division, it is leading towards destruction. So we have to think about this on a few levels. We have to think about are we double-minded? Are you double-minded? Am I double-minded? Do I, or do we present ourselves, you know, when we're around Christians, we're at church, we present ourselves a certain way, talk a certain way, act a certain way. But then when we're in the world, well, we're different. Talk differently, act differently, behave differently. We're double-minded. You see, we're going to become a casualty of ourselves because you cannot stand. A house divided cannot Stand, it's like shooting yourself, doing that is like shooting yourself in the foot. You'll, you'll be miserable either way. In church, you'll be miserable because you're like, I'm hiding who I really am. And in the world, I'll be miserable because I've got this big thing back here that I'm trying to keep as good as I can get it without truly going all the way into it. What about, what about the Bible? What about if, there's, if, we, if we introduce divisions into the Bible? Can it stand? 
If we, if we create a civil war within the pages of Scripture itself, we, we give the Bible an autoimmune disease where we, we start using verses to attack other verses or saying, well, this thing that Peter said, no, nah, that doesn't work. No, that's wrong. That verse is wrong. No, that shouldn't be in there. That book shouldn't be in there. That thing shouldn't be in there. Where does it end? It doesn't end. See, a Bible divided against itself cannot stand. It cannot stand. It is and it will lead to destruction. It will wither your faith. If you approach Scripture that way, it will wither your faith, and your faith will slowly wilt and die. What about factions in churches? Groups of people banding together saying, oh, well, I, I, we think this way, and we know these are the people, they think this way too, and so we're going to talk about this. We've got a little faction here going on. We've got a little something that's a bit different here, banding together. Division is leading towards destruction. A house divided cannot stand, and so the call to us, the call to all Christians is, you have to intentionally move towards unity. First and foremost, you have to fight for unity in terms of trusting each other. That's the foundation of it, relational trust. Saying, I want to care about people. I want to trust them and know them. And that's the foundation of it. But it goes beyond that. It's saying, actually, I want to try and get theological unity and philosophical unity as well. And you have to ask yourself the question, am I acting and behaving in such and thinking in such a way that is moving towards unity or moving away from unity? Because a house divided cannot stand. If you're moving away from things, gravitating towards the world, gravitating away from orthodox Christianity, gravitating away from those things, a house divided cannot stand. It's the suicide of a church. That's what it is. We don't realize we're the, sometimes the perpetrators of that. We're in an, an election year, oh the joy, and we're a really divided nation. And what did Jesus say about divided nations? They cannot stand. The only way to be able to stand is to bring unity. If you keep dividing, you'll be destroyed. That's the way this works. You have to draw a line somewhere and say, we're going to work at unity now. We're going we're to give unity a try. You're going to try and understand each other, right? You're going to try and get along. Stop vilifying and demonizing. Stop calling everybody Beelzebul, right? And the way we do that is we, we throw the, the Hitler label around, the Nazi label around. That's the wrong, wrong way. Everyone, everyone's a narcissist. I always feel like when the people who accuse people of being narcissists are most likely the narcissist. That's my, my theory with that. <laughs> you know, I think America, for all its faults, which are many, and great and horrific. For all of its faults, I, I like America, and I want it to do well. And part of the reason that is selfish, I live here. And my kids live here. And even when you think back to, I mentioned the Civil War, you think back to it, and you think, okay, yes, you know, the institution of slavery was, was wrong, of course. And, and yes, it, people, you know, the South wanted to defend that. Not everyone in the North wanted to abolish slavery either. There's nuance there. But can't we do two things? Can't we, on the one hand, say we see the bad. We don't want to, we don't want to diminish the bad. We, we, we see it. Yeah, it's, it's horrible. It's ugly. And we remember it and we learn from it. We don't want to repeat any of those things. But, but also, can't we also see that abolitionists were motivated by their Christian beliefs and that people did fight, that not everyone fought for that motivation, but people did fight to free black people from slavery. That's a bright spot. That's a spot of redemption. Can't we do both of those things? 
rather than having like a revisionist version of these events, can't we actually try to find unity around that and say, let's, let's keep working on that. Let's see the bad, but let's keep working on the good. See, the place of the church in the culture, there's lots of things we do as a Christian community. The big thing that we do is that we are the moral anchor of the society. See, the government is not the moral anchor of the society. That's the mistake that a lot of Christians make. It can't, the government can't be. Because here's, here's the game of politics. The game of politics is politicians change their views based on what people think and believe. So they're trying, to, we all know this, right? They're trying to appeal to the largest voting block. So it's like, well, if, if cultural ideas change over here, well, then how can we start saying things that like, sound like that so I, can, so I can get their vote? But I, I've got to say things in such a way that doesn't alienate these other voters I have. It's this big game of coalitions. And how do I get these people on my team and these people on my team, people you know, that maybe wouldn't normally be on a political team, but how can I appeal to all of these? And so politicians, it's not true of all politicians, but can we agree, it's probably most of them, that they'll say anything to get people to vote for them. They will say absolutely anything. They'll lie through their teeth over and over and over again because they want votes. And you see it happening all the time. How many times do we have to get disappointed and disillusioned with someone promising something and then getting into office and then instantly changing their views about it? I mean, have you experienced this disappointment before? I've experienced this disappointment before. When are we going to learn that that is not the government that dictates the morals and, and, and the, the values of the culture? It's the church that does that. And so we have to be salt and light. We have to shine the, the light of Jesus into the world, the, the message of grace, the radical message of the forgiveness of sins through the sacrifice of Jesus. We have to shine that message. And in that message, as people come into that message, you know what they'll pick up? They'll pick up all the values of the Bible. Because you, you, they, they all goes together. It all goes to, as you, as you find faith in Jesus, you start realizing like, oh, there's all these other, there's, there's other things about, oh, just the way I view the world, my, my overall general worldview begins to transform because, well, God says this and God says this and Jesus said this and, oh, I'm being shaped by him now, not by the world anymore. And so that's how you, that's how change really happens is us. And it starts with us relating to each other and being, working towards unity because if the church can't do it, how can we expect the culture to do it? We can't. And so we have to realize that there are demonic powers, there are demonic powers at work trying to deceive us, trying to divide us, trying to destroy us. And one of the activities of demonic work in our day and age is to take the history, past and also present things, the history of racial division, to take that, and to pour gasoline on it, where, there's, where, where we can never deny what's happened, and we have to understand racism of the past and racism of the, the present. We have to understand all of that in our own hearts, in institutions, and other people. We have to see all of that, of course, but we also have to understand that it is a demonic strategy not to heal those things, but to stoke those things, to, to amplify those things. And so sometimes we can be fooled into believing certain things or thinking certain things that aren't true. And we have to be, and it takes nuance, it takes care to say, we see what's happened, but also we see that people are trying to use that thing to bring more division. That's, sometimes we're, we're so like left brain, right brain about things. It's like it's either one or the other. Well, what about if we think about it? Maybe there's a little nuance with certain things. 
we have to see there's this demonic attempt to divide us. There's, there's a demonic attempt to pit men against women. To make men resent women and to make women resent men. But you see, humans divided cannot stand. We can't have unity if we're working towards division, if we're pitted against each other. There are, there are forces at work that want to use Christian compassion. They want to hijack Christian compassion and Christian love to moralize immoral things. To say, well, shouldn't we just love and accept these things and change a few little things here? And, but I'm thinking to myself, well, yeah, we can love people. We can be completely loving of all kinds of people. But that doesn't mean we, 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 we still got to have the categories of good and evil. <laughs> There's still categories. There's still right and wrong. We can do both of those things together. See, Jesus has come. He's come to attack evil, to destroy evil, to topple evil. Not to, he hasn't come to sign a peace treaty with it, say, hey, let's learn to get along. He's come to eviscerate it. Satan's work is to bring division. Jesus' work is to bring unity, and he wants to bring us together. And just as Satan's kingdom will be destroyed if he is divided, if he is casting out demons in his own name, and actually that's a sign to us that when a demon is cast out of somebody, it's actually a big blow to Satan's kingdom. That's actually a, a wound that's maybe inflicted. Because uh, that's a serious, it must be a very serious thing that happens. But in the same way that Satan's kingdom cannot stand if he is, has a civil war, churches cannot stand if they have a civil war, if they're divided. And so Jesus wants us to know that he's the guardian. He is the protector. So verse 27 this is what he tells us about his work to bring us together. He says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now sometimes people do some funky things with this verse where they're like, Okay, if you want to defeat the powers of darkness, you have to, we're going to bind Satan. So we're going to declare a binding of Satan in some kind of prayer or something. And I don't think that's really uh, what it's talking about here. Um, Actually, Jesus, so Jesus is saying the strong man is Satan. Satan is very powerful. So Jesus is kind of paying him a compliment in one sense, saying actually his power is pervasive. It is very manipulative. So there are even a lot of Christians that can't tell the lie from the truth. They get duped into things. Like even Christians who should know the word and should be wise and have the mind of God. That's how powerful Satan is that he can even deceive God's children, so very powerful. He's the strong man, and Satan's house is this world. In fact, in John chapter 12, Jesus even says, he says, the, the, the ruler of this world, he calls Satan the ruler of this world. So, so Satan's house is this world. And the goods in the strong man, Satan, and in his house are people who don't believe in Jesus. They're, on, they're automatically on team Satan. He has control over them. He's dominating their lives. And Jesus is the only one strong enough to enter this household, the strong man's house, and to grapple with the strong man and to bind him up and to gag him. This is what Jesus has done. This is actually what Jesus did in his temptations in the wilderness. When Satan came to him directly and tempted him, and Jesus resisted, he overcame the power of Satan. And in that moment... In the wilderness, Jesus bound Satan. He gagged Satan. He took away his power. And since that time, from that time until the passage we just read, Jesus has been plundering Satan's house. 
through exorcisms, through setting people free from demons, through healings, through all these different things. Jesus has been plundering Satan's house and pulling people out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. And so if you're going to apply the idea of binding the strong man, it's not to declare into the universe almost like you've got like a magic wand or a spell, like I'm binding Satan and therefore now we're, we can overcome demons. No, the, actually if you're going to bind Satan, it is to overcome temptation. If you overcome temptation, you walk and, and hey, the Holy Spirit, we want to be more holy like the Holy Spirit, right? We want the power of the Spirit to enable us to be more holy. As, as we say no to sin in our lives, that power is diminished or you, know, you, you can be more effective at plundering Satan's kingdom, pulling people out of Satan's kingdom. That's what Jesus did. He's the only one that, that, that could really do it. He started it. This makes Jesus a fighter, right? He's a warrior. He's a slayer. Jesus is slaying evil left and right. Jesus can slay all day, basically. And it's, it's Satan's goal to rip us apart, to sow seeds of doubt and lies and division, to do that. But it's Jesus' goal to attack in a warrior-like, evil-slaying way to attack Satan so that he cannot do that and then to bring healing to us. And how easy it is for Satan to sow the seeds in our hearts, the seeds of division, where we might think, actually, what some people teach or what some Bible verses say or what some Christians are doing, that's what's evil. That's actually the evil thing. To confuse the categories of good and, and, and evil to say good is bad and bad is evil, and essentially to believe that God is Satan. Couldn't God be Satan? That's the deepest lie. We have to realize, how can we plunder hell if we're bound by Beelzebub ourselves? We've got to get free. We've got to get free. What happened to our friend, Carice, who wanted to end it all, who was in absolute despair, suicidal, wanted to end it all? Well, she hadn't said the word God, in about three years. And this is typically what happens to Christians who deconstruct their faith. It, most don't survive. Most lose their faith. In fact, 99% of people, I think, if you deconstruct, you pull your faith apart, typically you completely end up losing it. And that's what happened to her. So she hadn't said God, she hadn't talked talk about God, prayed to God in about three years. Well, she's on the floor of her apartment, curled up in a ball, weeping and weeping, crying and crying uncontrollably, crying and crying and crying until she got to the, with these thoughts attacking, these demonic thoughts attacking her, until she got to the point where she cried out, God help me. That's all she could get out. God help me. As soon as she prayed that prayer, her phone rang. It was a Christian friend. It was a friend who had stayed connected with her throughout this whole journey. Somebody who'd intentionally stayed present in her life. And this friend listened, and Carice poured out her heart, poured out all of her pain, all of her turmoil, all everything she was struggling with, her, with her identity and the journey she'd been on. She just poured it out, poured it out, and her friend listened to her. Finally, eventually, her sister got back home as well and found Carice on the floor and got down there with her and said, are you ready to surrender? Are you ready to surrender? And Carice, in that moment, said, she said, I tried the other side, and I now realize it doesn't work. It doesn't work. 
And she, it was revealed by the Holy Spirit as a revelation given to her in that moment that she had begun to believe that the trauma and the pain she was experiencing was from God, that she thought she had been traumatized by God. She thought she'd been traumatized by her church, by her family and friends. She thought that that was the lie and that was the trauma and that was the thing that was destroying her. But in this moment, this revelation from the Spirit came that the pain she was experiencing was actually life without God. It was life without God. And so she started trying to rebuild her relationship with God. She went on walks. Every day she'd go on a walk and she would start talking to God again. She hadn't read the Bible in years and... She found that as she walked and as she prayed, Bible verses would come back into her mind. And along with those Bible verses was peace. The peace that she had lost. The truth changing her heart, realizing how much God loved her. See, she wanted to die. She didn't want to live, but she suddenly realized, God wants me to live. God wants me to have a life, to have an identity, to know who I am in him. And she realized that God's love is obsessive, completely obsessive, that he is relentless, that he wouldn't let her go, that he kept chasing her and chasing her and chasing her until he got her back. She ended this relationship that she had started, and she rejected her queer identity that she had taken on. And of course, her unbelieving friends accused her. They said, You're denying your true self. You're denying your true identity. You don't really know who you are. You're being brainwashed again. But since her eyes have been opened, she realized, she realized, actually denying yourself is good. That's a good thing. Because to be a Christian is to take up your cross and to bear your cross. It's to deny everything for the sake of Christ. To say, everything I have is his. I'm completely made by him and for him, and so I'm going to deny everything. For him, just as he denied himself for me, which is the gospel. And she said, but as she tried to describe this to her unbelieving friends, she said that they just, she realized they're not going to better understand it. It's impossible for them to understand it because they don't know how good God is and how much God loves them. And so she apologized to her Christian friends whom she'd attacked, and she restored those relationships. The friend that had to block her, they reconciled, and the unblocked, oh, the, the, the block was taken off, which is a real sign of modern-day redemption, right? When you get, you know, someone allows you back into their online life. Uh, Carissa's mother said that it was the greatest gift she could have ever received was her daughter coming back to Christ. See, believing the lie destroyed her community, destroyed her house, but believing the truth brought unity and restoration Carice was so grateful for all of the friends, all the Christian friends that showed her grace during this time, of which there were many, that journeyed with her. They stayed with her the whole time. They stayed in her life, stayed connected, gracious, being present. But she also was grateful that they didn't go along with what she was saying. They didn't believe the lie. They were compassionate, but they held to what they knew to be true. And my prayer is that we can be a church like that. A heart of compassion, but an unwavering commitment to what we know is true. Rather than being brainwashed, Carice realized that her mind needs to be renewed in every way. Her mind is very faulty, very weak. She'll believe all kinds of stuff that she shouldn't believe. And so she realizes that her mind has to be completely renewed by Christ. And so she saw a deeper spiritual reality, an amazing spiritual reality. It was revealed so deeply that she even realized the phrase... Do what thou wilt. 
She didn't know the origin of that phrase. That, that, that phrase was coined by Alastair Crawley of the Church of Satanism. And so she realized she was believing something she thought was good, but it was directly demonic. Jackie Hill Perry, who is a former lesbian, she is friends with Carice, and she says that Christians who have never gone through a wild season of living, Christians who have never thrown themselves into debauchery or thrown themselves into all of their perhaps carnal desires, she says they face a very unique temptation. If you've grown up as a Christian, you've been in a Christian bubble, as it were, protected, as it were, from the world. And if you get out of that bubble, she says there's a particular temptation that you're always, always struggling, always wondering, well, you know, those people over there look like they're having a really good time. What if it is actually better over there? Plagued by this idea that it is, I've been lied to, I've been deceived. And Jackie Hill Perry says, that's a demonic lie. That's a lie from Satan. That's Satan lying to you because she lived that life. And she came to realize it's empty and dissatisfying. And her and Carice know that Jesus is better as a fact because it's their life. They know that life doesn't, it's shallow, it's empty, it's destructive. You'll be destroyed. Jackie Hill Perry in her book, she says this. She says, my hands, feet, face, legs, hips, hormones, private parts, voice, feet, fingers, feelings, were all made by him and for him. Apparently this body was never mine to begin with. It was given to me from somebody, for somebody. Somebody who'd made it for glory and not shame. Until I got to know him, though, my identity would be made up of whatever dust that flew up from the devil's feet as he ran through the earth. If you belong to Christ, but you live and you try to live in such a way as if you belong to another, you cannot stand. Because a house divided cannot stand. Sin can feel good for a while but it's masquerading. Sin can feel good for a while, but it's masquerading as good. It's really evil. We need God, and until we get rid of every other contender, we'll never be happy, and this is the good news. The good news is this, is that Jesus bound the strong man. Jesus went into the house of Satan, went into the darkest, deepest, most shameful parts of our lives on the greatest rescue mission to pull us out, to pull us out of that darkness. There's no place that Jesus won't go. He'll go into the depths of hell. He did go into the depths of hell, to pull us out, to rescue us from that darkness. And in the wilderness, he bound Satan, but on the cross, he crushed Satan. The power of Satan is defeated. You can be free, you can know who you are, you can know right from wrong, and you can be filled with compassion, and we can be unified with each other. Let's respond in worship. Let's sing to our God, He's the only one who can define who we are and who can help us know who we are. And as we sing, let us turn our affections to him and let's turn our desires to him and let's turn our fears to him and let's turn even our blasphemies to him. We're going to connect in this, we're going to collect in this connect card and the offering envelope here. The baskets will come around in just a second here. But let's go ahead and stand and let's worship.